It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now, here's today's special guest, Philip Hartman. Typically, today would be a David and Nathan would be teaching, and, uh, but Nathan and Eric are actually at a conference in Pennsylvania. Do you know where we're at in Pennsylvania, Sarah? Do you know where, where they're at in Pennsylvania? They're at a conference in Pennsylvania. Yeah, in Lancaster. And so if you think about it, you can be praying for them this weekend. And then they get back Saturday. And of course, we have 100 students arrive on campus Saturday to launch into the semester. So for those of you live streaming as well, if you think about it, we would certainly appreciate and desire your prayers as we are launching into this upcoming five-week discipleship uh, program. But why don't we pray here, and then we'll dive in. Lord, we thank you for your word and the preciousness of it. Lord, as your word promises that you preserve your word and we can see your faithfulness throughout all history and time as you have faithfully preserved your word. Lord, we pray also that you would preserve it in our hearts, in our minds, in our reception this morning. That we would receive it accurately that we would receive it as it is indeed the Word of God, and that we would not only hear it accurately, but that we would become accurate doers of it, that we would believe it, that it would change our thinking and our living and and our, our entire perspective on life, that we would be conformed to your image as we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Lord, we do pray for, for Eric and Nathan this morning as they're at this conference. We just pray for a, a rich anointing upon them, an unction as they preach the word. And as those who are, are hearing and, and listening, Lord, there be a, a mighty and powerful demonstration of your grace working to save and to sanctify and to, to, to strengthen your people. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Psalm chapter 16. So I'm going to be launching in this morning to a series on Psalm chapter 16. Now it's not going to be like a Nathan Johnson series on Ephesians where it's going to take several years. We'll probably go through it in four or five different chunks. So we're going to go through the first three verses this morning. Uh, But I'm going to give a little bit of an introduction, background of a psalm, and then we'll read it and then we're going to dive into the first couple of verses. So this psalm, if you read it, it says a miktam of David. That's the title that you would have in the Hebrew for this psalm. And I want to read something from Spurgeon from one of his sermons on describing a little bit about what a a miktam is. Now it's a bit of a mystery and and, uh, different folks have some different opinions on it, but, but I think Spurgeon sums it up well. He says, this is usually understood to mean the golden psalm. And as such, a title is most appropriate, for the matter is as the most fine gold. Ainsworth calls it David's jewel, or notable song. Dr. Hawker, who is always alive to passages full of savor, devoutly cries, Some have rendered it precious, others golden, and others precious jewel. As the Holy Ghost by the apostles Peter and Paul have shown us that it is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. What is here said of him is precious, as golden is a jewel indeed. 
We have not met with the term miktam before, but if spared to write upon Psalms 56, 57, 58, 59, and 60, we shall see it again, and shall observe that the like, pres- that the, sorry, that like the present, these Psalms, although they begin with a prayer and imply trouble, abound in holy confidence and close with songs of assurance as to ultimate safety and joy. Dr. Alexander, whose notes are peculiarly valuable, thinks that the word is most profitably, sorry, most probably a simple derivative of a word signifying to hide, and signifies a secret or mystery, and indicates the depth of doctrinal and spiritual import in these sacred compositions. If this be the true interpretation, it well accords with the other, and when the two are put together, they make up a name which every reader will remember, and which will bring the precious subject at once to mind, the psalm of a precious secret. So that's a bit of a description on this idea of what a miktam is. And as Spurgeon noted, it's in, in five other psalms besides this psalm are, are notated as miktams. So let's read through it. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor will I take their names on my lips. O Lord, you are a portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in chill, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So we're going to look at this in, in the coming weeks in three different perspectives. So the first one is we're going to look at the psalm as it relates to David. So David is a writer of this, this miktam or this precious uh, psalm revealing a mystery. And we're going we're gonna to look at it in regards to how does this, how's the original meaning meant, right? What is the original writer or author David trying to convey in this psalm? Then we're going to look at it in regards to how does this psalm reveal the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have David first who is a type or a picture, a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. David was in the line of Jesus Christ, and, and it talks many times in the prophecies of the Messiah that he would be like unto David, a king and, and these sort of things, okay? And so we're going to see how it, it, we see David, but then we're going to see how it's a foreshadow and a picture of Christ in this psalm. And by the way, the, the New Testament writers quote this psalm profusely, and we'll get into that as we get a little bit later into the psalm. And then number three, we're going to look at how does this psalm then impact us today as as members of a body of christ and and those who are to be conformed to the image of christ we see how it it, it foretold of christ what does it now then mean in regards to how we ought to conduct ourselves as men and women so we're going to focus on verse one through three and i want to just go through this again preserve me O god for in you i put my trust O my soul you have said to the lord 
you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. So let's talk about how this relates to David, the original author. Now, this was most likely written when David was fleeing from Saul. The psalm itself doesn't say that, but based upon some historical things and the content in it, it was most likely written when David was fleeing from Saul, and certainly was written when David was in a time of great difficulty. And so we have David starting out this psalm with this cry for preservation. Preserve me, O God. Now, keep in mind, in his nation, Saul is... is is head and shoulder above all the rest of the people, and he is king of that day. Okay? So, so Saul is the king that is at least the acknowledged king. However, at this point, Samuel has already come, and, and the, the sons of Jesse were all rejected except for David. He was been anointed as king. And so David is the rightful king. This has been made known public in some regard at least. People know this or are aware of this on some level. We don't know how far that spread. But we know that people are aware of this. And he is the rightful king, and yet Saul is still the acting king at this time in Israel. And Saul is pursuing after David. And you have this picture of, of weakness. In, in, in fact, in, in regards to earthly balances and, and the earthly likelihood of David making it, it's very, very, very slim. Because he's not impressive. He doesn't have some impressive... Host. In fact, they're living in a cave, which, by the way, is not really a compliment to be living in a cave. And yet his cry is, preserve me, O God. Now, this word in the, in the Hebrew is the word shamar. And this idea is to be guarded, protected, or watch over. And it's oftentimes used in regards to a shepherd watching over his sheep. Okay, so it's oftentimes this idea of a sheep is dumb, right? We all, everybody talks about sheep in that way and doesn't do very well without a shepherd, right? That's, I think Eric has a message on the difference between a dodo a bird and the sheep, is that the dodo bird doesn't have a shepherd, and yet the sheep does. And, and, and a sheep is hopeless towards the end of being preserved, apart from his shepherd guarding, watching, and this, this isn't just a passive word, but this is the idea of this active laboring for preservation to take place. For someone to be rescued and saved and protected and guarded. Now, David primarily, obviously, was, was thinking about this in terms of, Lord, I'm going to die. <laughs> right? This was a very physical uh, prayer for him. Preserve me, O Lord. It's this idea of a watchman watching for an enemy attack. is also this preserving of... of Lord, would you watch, and, and, and it's like the word provision, to see ahead of time and, and make provision for my life to be preserved. And on what basis is David asking this? He says, for in you I put my trust. I, I really like the, the way the NASB translates that because it's a little bit closer to the Hebrew. It says, for I take refuge in you. I take refuge in you. And that's what that word in the Hebrew for the word trust, or what's most often translated as trust, is this idea of seeking refuge or or fleeing for protection, 
confiding or putting your hope in, in someone or, or something. Now, the idea is, the, the classic idea is, you've got your enemy chasing you, and you're fleeing to, the, to your own home castle, right? And you cross the, the drawbridge, and the drawbridge comes up, and the enemy comes up right against the moat, right? That's the classic, you're fleeing to that castle for protection. You're fleeing to that for refuge, because you know if you can get there, that you'll be preserved. That's the idea here. Now, one of the, the, the ideas that we have of trust in our modern day is almost like this idea of a, of a mental ascent, similar to, to the way that we, we think about this idea of belief is, oh yeah, that's true, I believe that. Yeah, I trust him. I'm sure about that. And, and uh, let me give you an example of this. I think a great example is the difference between a contract and a covenant. Okay? So, you have a contract, and you go, oh, yeah, I trust this person, I'll, I'll do business with them. And you draw up a contract, and you know what the, the difference between a contract and a covenant is this. Every contract has a means by which you can get out of it. Whether you buy yourself out or, or this or right, there's a way to get out of it. There's a way to close it. There's a finishing. There's a termination clause, right? This thing, I trust you, but I need a termination clause. Okay, but a covenant is different. Did you know that the nature of a covenant is that neither party can get out of it? So whereas a contract says, this is what we're agreeing on, and if you want to, and if I want to, then we can agree to get out of it. Or if you do this, then I can get out of it. And if I do this, then you can get out of it. That's a contract. Okay? Whereas a covenant says, we get into this, and the only way that we can get out of it is death. So unless you die or I die, we're in this thing. And we see a picture of that in marriage. But you recognize that is the sort of trusting relationship that we have with the Lord. It takes a lot more trust to enter into, into a covenant than it does to enter into a contract, doesn't it? You can say, oh, I trust you, but let's just put some exit clauses in there. Let's make sure that we have a termination clause of this thing. But a covenant, particularly when you're covenanting with one that does not die. Right? <laughs> you're covenanting with the eternal God. And the terms of a covenant say he's going to raise you again from the dead. <laughs> wow. So a covenant takes a whole different level of trust. And I think many of us think in terms of trust of, in more in a contractual sense. Lord, I trust you. And by the way, I've got this exit clause over here if I need. Or, yeah, I will still be in a relationship with you, but I can come over here and figure out another source. Uh, figure out another refuge. A backup plan. And yet a covenant is this trust that has no exit clause, no termination clause. It's this unconditional trust in the Lord as our refuge. What a sweet thing for David to be able to say as, as, as he's entering into this time of trouble. That, that David is not saying, okay, Lord, I guess I need to figure out this thing of you because this isn't working out with Saul. But David saying, Lord, would you, perverse, would you preserve me? Because you are my refuge. This is not a new reality for him, but this is a, a lasting reality that, that came long before the troubles of Saul pursuing him came. Because you remember, there was a time when he was in Saul's court. He was doing pretty good, hanging out with the king. Right? And, and yet, at that time, the Lord was his refuge. 
And now this challenging season comes, these difficulties come, and he says, Lord, would you preserve me? For in you, I put my trust. You are my refuge. Just a few passages. Proverbs 30 says, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Psalm 37, The Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. Every word of God is... That's a repeat. The Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. So I want to read you this passage from 2 Samuel 8. And you'll see this, this, I'm just giving you two examples in verse 6 and verse 14. You can see this all throughout the life of David. And just think about the faithfulness of God in this. It says, Vid David put up garrisons in Syria of Damascus. By the way, this is quite a long time later. And the Syrians became servants to David and brought gifts. And the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. And he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons. And all they of Edom became David's servants. And the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. He preserved him. And you know, I think oftentimes as we read the scriptures, we can read David praying, Oh Lord, preserve me. And we can read the Lord preserved him everywhere he went. And then we can go to prayer and, and, and say, Lord, preserve me, and then we can go worry the rest of our day. You recognize that's unbiblical? But oftentimes, uh, we, we see, oh yeah, the Lord answered that prayer, but we completely fail to say, Lord, what, what does that look like in my life? You recognize the faithfulness of God that we see in the testimony of the scriptures in the answering of prayer. So let's go on to verse 2. In verse 2, we have this twofold confession is what I'm calling it. And, and it's a confession and a reminder so here's what David says. He says, oh, my soul. Okay, so the first one, he says, preserve me, oh, God. He's talking to God, okay? Now he's changed directions a little bit. And he says, oh, my soul, you have said to the Lord. So he's reminding himself of something he previously said. He's confessing or, or, or reminding himself of what he had confessed. And here are the, the, the two things. You are my Lord, my goodness, is nothing apart from you. So part one, he says, Oh, my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Here David is in the, in the midst of this challenging and difficult situation, and we know that from a young age he had honored the Lord, and that he had declared the Lord as his Lord. And here he is in a challenging situation, and he's reminding himself, Oh, my soul, you have proclaimed to the Lord, you are my Lord. What a comforting thought in the midst of this challenging situation. David's confession is that the Lord is his Lord. He's not just the Lord in a general sense, but he is Lord over David's life, meaning master, ruler, controller. The idea of Lord is the one who owns a thing. And gets to dispose of it however he wants. In the Greek, it's the word kurios, which is how this is, is translated into the Greek when it's translated. It's this disposer of a thing. He says, Lord, I've told you, you are my Lord. You dispose of me however you want. I'm owned by you, I'm operated by you. W- whatever you want to do, Lord, I'm asking you to preserve me, and I remind myself that you are. Lord, not only in a general sense, but you are Lord in my life, Lord over the situation. 
David is reminding himself of this reality. And then number two, he says, My goodness is nothing apart from you. My goodness is nothing apart from you. And we're going to get, because I'm tempted to go into how that relates to us, we're going to get into that in, in a little bit here. But my goodness is nothing apart from you. You know, I was thinking this morning as I was pondering this, you guys remember David fights Goliath, and then you have these songs that start to come out. And the people would sing about Saul, and Saul is, has uh, slayed. Slayed? Is that what it is? Slain? That's the term. Thank you very much. I guess you're an English teacher, sort of, right? Olivia is like cringing at my English up here. So uh, Saul is slain his thousands, and then David is slain his tens of thousands. Now, we all know that, so it's become very normal to us. But go back to that day, and, and you recognize, particularly in their culture, in, in this Eastern Hebrew culture, that was a massive, offensive thing for these people to do. Massively offensive. For these people to be singing, yeah, the king is slain a thousand, but David, he's slain ten thousand. You recognize that David was praised far beyond even the greatest man, so to speak, in the land. And yet here his confession is, Lord, what I've said and what I'm reminding myself of is that my goodness is nothing. Zip, zero, absolutely nothing apart from you. Now, Psalm 52, this is a a, a contemplation of David when, do you guys remember Doag the Edomite? And Doag the Edomite comes and he sort of tells Saul what David is doing. Okay? And, and so he betrays David. And, and so this is David's response to that. And so it's, it's a very similar situation, if not the same situation, in which this, the context of this Psalm 16 is written. And David says this in verse 7 and 8. He says, Here is the man who did not make God his strength. What a contrast. My goodness is nothing apart from you. And here is the man who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. But I am like a green olive tree, in the house of God, I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. And of course, my confidence and my strength and my refuge is not based upon something else, but is based upon the fact that I'm in the house of God. And that's where my strength and my preservation is coming from. And so in the third verse in, in Psalm 16, it in the context, you can see how it would flow out of that, okay? Particularly if this really was the situation where, where Doag the Edomite, we, we know it's very likely when Saul's pursuing him, at what point in that, I'm not sure. Uh, but, but he says, as for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Now, it's really interesting if you contrast this with Saul and Doag the Edomite. Because I don't know if you guys remember what happens, but, what, but, but Doag turns traitor, right? And betrays David. But then they go and they slaughter 
all of the priests. They go and slaughter all the priests. And see, here you have this contrast of David on one hand, whose delight is in the saints and and, and in the people of God. And the other side, Saul, who is willing to slaughter the people who he has been commanded to rule. And, and, And not just people, but the priests in the house of the Lord. Because of his bitterness and and envy towards David. You see even the same thing coming out. For example, in this contrast between David and Saul. In in the picture of David and Goliath. Where here you have David. Who who is willing to go face the giant. Why? That the people would know. That there is a Lord God in Israel. That was why he did it. It was for the glory of the Lord and that all the people, the whole house of Israel, would know assuredly this thing about God. And in the contrast, here you have Saul who's cowering in his tent thinking about himself. And you recognize you cannot love the saints of God and love yourself at the same time. It doesn't work. Because loving yourself is called sin. And and and. And so loving the saints of God and loving yourself, which, by the way, loving the saints of God is going to be laying down your life on their behalf. And we see that in David. So secondly, the psalm as it relates to Jesus, who, of course, is a fulfillment, the Messiah, the Christ. And, and as we get more into the psalm, I'll be able to unpack this more and more because looking back from the whole breadth of the psalm, it's, it's quite extraordinary. But here you see this, this cry, Preserve me, O God, for you I put my trust. And you recognize that Jesus, though in, in, in clearly different than David, in that David was a mere man and Jesus is God himself, Jesus put his trust and his confidence and, and re- received his preservation from the Father. In fact, one of the things that's very interesting about Psalm 16, and it's so profound as we get a little bit further into the psalm, is that this song, after David wrote it, became a song that in the, in the Israelite culture would be sung at death. Okay? So it was a song that the people who were dying would be thinking about, and all the people around them would be singing it. So imagine you're standing around a deathbed. This would be the song that you would be singing if you were a Hebrew. And, and this actually was still going on in the time of Jesus. And Jesus, I believe, was thinking about this psalm as he died. In fact, very likely, this psalm would have been one that was being sung, whether it was there at the cross or elsewhere, but one that would have been sung and, and meditated upon, because that was part of their entire culture, was to, to sing different psalms at different times. And this was one that was sung at a time of death. And you know what's interesting? At Matthew 27, you have them reviling Jesus. It says, And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads. He's on the cross, and saying, Thou that destroys the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. 
Likewise, also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him now deliver in him, him. And if he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. Isn't it amazing that even, even what his enemies mocked him with was he trusted in God. Let God deliver him. And of course we know that God ultimately did through raising him to, from the dead. But you have this passage in Isaiah 49, this, this promise to the Messiah, as it were. It says, Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord that is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. Thus saith the Lord, in an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee, and give thee for a covenant of a people, to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages, that thou mayest say to the prisoners, Go forth to them that are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed in the ways, and their pastures shall be in all the high places. So in the second verse, you have this twofold confession. O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord. You recognize that Jesus submitted to the Father holy? Uh, that is, it talks about in Hebrews, but he did not take upon himself the honor of a high priest, but it was given to him. And in Hebrews chapter 1, even in quoting the Psalms, he says, and God, even your God, in, in reference to Jesus. Jesus says, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. John 6, he says, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. John 5, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For what things soever he does, this also does the Son likewise. My goodness is nothing apart from me. Jesus says that over and over. I only do what the Father does. I only say what the Father does. I never came to do my own will, but to do that of him which sent me. And lastly, as for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And we're going to talk a little bit more about some of that verse in, in the coming weeks, in the coming pieces of a series. And yet, the Lord takes delight in his saints. The Lord Jesus does. Isn't that a precious thought? That the Lord has a pleasure and a delight in his saints who are here on the earth. So Psalm 16 as it relates to us. Time's going quick. Those of us who are of the body of Christ and are conformed to the image of Christ. So again, verse 1, Preserve me, O God, for in you I put 
my trust. Do you have that sort of covenantal trust with the Lord? That sort of trust that, that doesn't have the termination or exit clause? And of course, as we seek the Lord as our refuge, by nature of making him our refuge, we must forsake all other refuges. Isaiah 30, this is a warning of the people of Israel who had trusted, or Judah, who had trusted in Egypt. And he says, Woe to the rebellious children, saith the Lord, that take counsel, but not of me. Wow. That take counsel, but not of me. Boy, there's a lot of counselors out there today, right? There's, there's a lot of Christian counseling colleges. I hope they're teaching men and women to take counsel of the Lord. And to go to his word, not just of men. That take counsel, but not of me. And that cover with a covering, but not of my spirit. That they may add sin to sin. That walk to go down into Egypt and have not asked at my mouth. To strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and, in the tr- and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. And Isaiah 57 says, When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will carry all of them up, and a breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me will inherit the land and will possess my holy mountain. Verse 2, O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. You know, it says in Philippians 2, one of my favorite passages, it says, Wherefore God has highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, and given him a name which is above every name, that of the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, every single person that has ever lived will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And yet what David says here is, is soul, you have said to yourself, or sorry, you've said to the Lord. You re- he, he, he recognizes him as Lord there. You have said to the Lord, what? You are my Lord. Do you recognize there's a difference? There's a difference between saying, yeah, 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 okay, I think he's Lord. And saying, no, 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 he's my Lord. Not just Lord in general, but I am submitting to him as Lord. One day everybody will confess him as Lord. And yet are we confessing him as Lord now? Not just Lord in general, but my Lord and just as that was a comfort to David, in the, in the midst of this time of trouble, of Saul seeking his life, that he could say, and yet I've said to you, you are my Lord. And I'm remembering that. What a comfort and a solace that is to us as saints. That he is Lord in general, and yet he is our Lord. And if he is truly Lord, 
You recognize that your sin cannot be Lord. Your situation cannot be Lord. You cannot be Lord. And so this reminder is a reminder that all things are underneath his feet. But you see, this isn't just a, a, a confession of words. But we see in David's life this declaration of his life that he was his Lord. And again, that's this idea of, of the one who owns, possesses, disposes, or controls of a person or thing. I mean, he says, my goodness is nothing apart from you. And until we've come to a place where that is something that we can say, I, I, I have recognized and I remember that my goodness is nothing apart from him, then we're missing out on this chief idea of Christianity. That it has nothing to do with my own goodness and my own righteousness and my own ministry and the things that I'm going to go do and recognizing that those things are nothing. In fact, that not only is my goodness nothing apart from him, my goodness is as filthy rags apart from him. It's the dirtiest thing there is apart from him. And you know, this isn't just something that we think about in terms of when we originally come to the Lord to say, oh Lord, I need your righteousness. But this should be something that we remember as saints of God, just as David here is remembering it. That my goodness is nothing apart from you. Because it can be easy to, to recognize that as a sinner, to repent of your sin, to enter into Christ, and to embrace Christ's righteousness. And then to begin to get into ministry and to begin to do things for the Lord and to begin to think that somehow you need to figure out how to do good enough things to cause other people to come to the Lord or, or to, to, to give glory to the Lord. Or... And so I want to remind you today of what the Scripture calls, He is Jehovah Mechadishkim, the Lord who sanctifies us. But it is not you yourself that sanctify yourself. But it is Christ and that our goodness is nothing apart from Christ. As Paul says in Philippians 3, Yet indeed I also count all things as lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. Our goodness is nothing apart from him. We're running out of time here. Finally, the third verse. And it's for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And you recognize that this will be the, the statement of anyone who has made the statement in verse 2. Anybody who has made a statement in verse 2 of, Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no goodness apart from you, is going to turn around and take joy and delight in the saints of God. In fact, it's impossible to make the first statement without making the second one. It's impossible to have the reality of verse 2 without having the reality of verse 3. They don't coexist. Okay, for example, 1 John chapter, I'll read a little bit from 4. 
in a little bit from chapter 5 in 1 John. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. 1 John 5, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot, meaning him who, who, who birthed him, so to speak, also loves him who is begotten of him. He who was birthed from him. So if you have been born of God, you will love those who have been born of God. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. They are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Now this is, this is more specific even than just loving the saints of God, but taking a joy and a light and an excitement in the saints of God from the earth. And can I just challenge you? How do you talk about the people of God, the saints of God? Do you talk about them with a, with, with a, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight type of mentality? Or, or is your tongue more used as a, as a mouthpiece of criticism towards the saints of God? How do you think about the saints of God? Right, because maybe you don't say it, but you, right, some of us do that. You recognize he doesn't just say hold your tongue, but hold your thoughts, right? That, that we're supposed to take that captive every thought. That, that are our thoughts towards the people of God, such as, as David is talking about here? I challenge you on that. So let's just read through these first three, three verses one more time, and then we'll go to, to prayer and worship here. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. Let's pray. Father, would this be a reality in our lives? Just as we saw it in David and we see it in Jesus as the Christ, would you work this in our lives? That there would be a trust, a taking refuge in you. Lord, that we'd remember that you are our Lord and that our goodness is nothing apart from you. Thank you for your word, Lord. We pray that it would have its way in our lives and that it would reign in our thinking as an outflow into our living. It's in Jesus' name. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellerslie campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.